Hi, I'm Heather Steinmeier, Chief Policy Officer at the International Trademark Association and host of today's episode of Brand and New. The World Wide Web launched in the public domain on April 30th, 1993, a little over 30 years ago. It was a major technological leap forward for humanity. It was a game changer, full of possibility and also uncertainty. Experts are reminding us a lot lately that artificial intelligence, AI, has also been around for many decades. Nevertheless, much like the internet in the 1990s, ChatGPT becoming publicly available in November 2022 represents another paradigm shift for humanity and its relationship with technology. One billion ChatGPT web visits took place following its launch. According to PwC, AI is predicted to contribute $15.7 trillion to the global economy by 2030. Yes, the stakes are high. Yes, it's a game changer. And yes, it's full of possibility and uncertainty. Last month, the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, released a study predicting that AI will affect close to 40% of all jobs. For some, it will be beneficial, boosting their productivity. For almost everyone else, their jobs are at risk. This report was published as business and political leaders from around the world prepared to gather in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum, where AI took center stage. Highlighting the apprehension around this, quote, disruptive technology, the response from governments has been surprisingly swift. A number of countries signed a declaration on the safe development of the technology at the AI Safety Summit hosted by the UK late last year. And we're seeing increased regulation around the world, including in the European Union, China, and the US, meaning in the world's largest economies. As businesses across all sectors explore AI's potential, they must also wade through its unknowns and navigate evolving regulation. In other words, they must innovate and use AI responsibly. Our guest today is John Iwata. He is an executive fellow at the Yale School of Management, where he co-leads a program studying the leadership implications of stakeholder capitalism. He also directs the Data and Trust Alliance, a not-for-profit organization established in 2020 by CEOs of major companies, including American Express, Johnson & Johnson, Nike, Pfizer, Starbucks, and Walmart. The Alliance develops and promotes the adoption of responsible AI and data practices. Prior to this, Mr. Iwata held multiple roles at IBM over three and a half decades, including serving as the company's global marketing and communications leader, chief brand officer, and chairman of IBM's corporate strategy committee. He also established and chaired the company's values and policy committee. Among his various accolades and accomplishments, Mr. Iwata is also the co-inventor of a U.S. patent for a nanotechnology and process for atomic-scale semiconductors. John, welcome to Brandon New. Skeptics have been wary of AI since its conception in the 1950s, which seems like a long time ago to many. Why, in your view, is it having its breakthrough moment now? Well, Heather, thank you for having me. The concept of artificial intelligence is decades old. However, the attempts to create technologies to fulfill the concepts, or rather to do what was discussed a long time ago, they, those have changed quite a bit. Uh, initially, there were kind of brute force computational models of just trying to come up with um, answers. There were expert systems that tried to codify um, how humans went about their expert work. And these were all systems that were deterministic. You, know, you, you were still programming 
in a way, you're programming the system to um, to operate. What's different today is that these are not systems that are programmed. These are systems that learn and continue to learn. And this is possible now because of the tremendous amount of data that is now being generated every second of, of the day and the avail availability of computation in the cloud and storage in the cloud. So it's the confluence of, of a new technique, uh, machine learning and deep learning. It is the phenomenon of data, which, which AI today absolutely requires, but it also creates a lot of things that have to be addressed very carefully and thoughtfully. And yes, the computational power. But it's a bit of a misnomer to think that we now have like these massive machines, like supercomputers. And while compared to the past, the computational power is staggeringly uh, more advanced, it really is the phenomenon of data and these new techniques of machine and deep learning. Thank you. That's a great foundation for where we're going with our next questions. So the concept of disruption comes up frequently in the in the space of new technology. Um, and many technologies such as AI have been referred to as disruptive. That's perhaps not untrue for many, but we also usually overcome the disruptive effects. We innovate and we eventually adopt the new technology, hopefully with an intended and positive outcome. But is this cycle inevitable or can we just adjust our perspective and our approach to these types of new technologies rather than automatically deeming them disruptive? It depends uh, who, who is being disrupted. <laughs> I think in the past with the technology industry, I'm talking about the information technology industry, you had incumbents disrupted by new kinds of technologies and the companies that would bring them to market. So not to give a history lesson of computation, but you had mini computers and digital equipment company was a new kind of uh, business that disrupted the mainframe business. Then, of course, you had the PCs disrupting you know, the mini computer business. What's different, I think, since the internet was that when that term disruption is mentioned, it usually applies to all businesses and all industries, not just the technology industry disrupting itself. And why? It's because since the internet, we clearly see that these new technologies change the basis of competitive advantage. And if you're a retailer, you're disrupted because now a company that marshals the capabilities of the internet and of apps and so forth and mobile, they're going to do, they're going to be a better retailer than perhaps you are. Same thing with pharmaceutical companies, same thing with transportation companies, insurance companies, banks, and on and on. And so is it inevitable? Well, I, I think it is in some sense because it's going to repeat itself as long as it's hard for human beings to change. As long as we remain wedded to the past, whatever made us successful in the past, we, we think that will just continue into the future. And if we are resistant to the possibility of new ways of doing things that we think we're very good at today, then that's going to cause us to delay in embracing the new. And then we, we open ourselves up to, quote, disruption. Now, the other side of that, which is equally perilous, is to leap to any new thing and think that is the thing. So now and then, it seems like it's like every 10 or 15 years, there is a truly new disruptive technology that comes along. 
And you have to be perceptive enough, smart enough, fast enough to discern this is one that we really have to pay attention to. And these others, you know, kind of come and go. And AI seems to be in the category of, yes, you know, this one is going to change the basis of competitive advantage. Thinking about how we can positively embrace technology like AI, you co-founded the Data and Trust Alliance in 2020. It brings together leading businesses and institutions from across multiple industries to learn, develop, and adopt responsible data and AI practices, but with a focus on accelerated learning and implementation, and perhaps with the competitive underpinnings as its foundation that you just mentioned. This dynamic speaks to, and perhaps even seeks to resolve, the contentious nature of AI. On the one hand, we uh, we want to adopt AI as quickly as we can from a new technology standpoint. On the other hand, we need to do so responsibly. Let's take the example of a brand looking to bring innovation into its product design, into its supply chain, and to an enhanced experience for its customers. In practical terms, what does the responsible use of AI that is fostered by the Alliance look like for a brand attempting to do this type of transition? Let me answer that question by illustrating it with the very first project that the Alliance chose to take on back in 2020. And it surprised, I think, even members of our Alliance. And I should mention the, the, uh, the, the Alliance was formed by CEOs of companies like American Express, uh, Nike, Starbucks, Johnson and Johnson, General Motors, Pfizer, and, and and others, because they had a they shared certain things, not only a view or conviction that AI was going to be the next basis of competitive advantage, and they did not want to be disrupted, so they wanted to get ahead of it, but they also shared values that rather than be required through regulation or through the school of hard knocks, like making mistakes and and having unintended consequences, they said, let us try to take advantage of the technology and do so in ways that mitigate those bad effects and harms and demonstrate responsibility. And yes, you know, by and large, businesses don't invite regulation, um, but they acknowledge that society has a right to pass regulation if businesses don't regulate themselves, frankly. And so they said, let's let's try. The first project, as I said, which surprised some, was not the use of data or AI for customers or consumers. It was the use of data and, uh, and, tech and AI for employee decisions. And it was the human resource functions. So if you think about it for a moment, um, it actually does make sense. I mean, today, I mean, Walmart is a founding member of the Data and Trust Alliance. It is the second largest employer in the United States. You could imagine, and Starbucks, and think about CVS Health. How many people apply for jobs at Walmart, Starbucks, CVS every day? Do we think that a human being is reading thoughtfully every job application that's being uploaded, you know, digitally? No, um, this is way before chat GPT, of course, right? The, the, the HR functions have been using for some time algorithms to help with decisions, you know, sc screening job applications for fit, um, making recommendations, personalizing things for employees. So our first project was 
Let's look at the HR function's use of data algorithms and AI for decision support as it relates to the entire life cycle of employment. From the time you apply for a job, you come into the company, you get promoted, you're paid, your benefits, and so forth. And what we found from that validated that HR functions, this is back in 2020, absolutely are using data and technology for decision support. We surveyed the HR professionals, the HR leaders of these companies. Their greatest concern about the use of technology for their work was not privacy. That was number two. And it was not security, which was number three. It was the perpetuation of historical biases. You know, we only hire you know, certain age groups. We only hire certain genders historically, maybe not intentionally, maybe not willfully, but that is the case. And their concern was if they use the technology, they're simply going to be repeating that into the future at the very time that every CEO of these companies are talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So their concern was, is the technology making it better or making it, in fact, perhaps worse? So what we created with them, with the HR professionals and with procurement professionals, was a set of what we called anti-bias algorithmic safeguards to properly screen the vendors that they were going to use to ensure that their suppliers, their vendors, they had in place the proper management system controls, the proper mechanisms to identify, mitigate, and monitor bias. And again, that brings us back to what's different about AI in our time. It's the data. So if, if, you're, if you're only using historical data to train these systems and to help you make those decisions, and that historical data tended toward hiring or promoting certain kinds of folks, if you don't know that and you don't correct for that, that's just going to simply you know, go off into the future. That issue of the potential for bias in data is a really big one and certainly a, a core part of responsible AI programs. Pivoting a little bit in that direction, one of the concepts that I think underpins what you are describing is the need for trust, systems that have that can produce trustworthy results, whatever, however you define trustworthy in a given context. Businesses have to be able to trust that they can deploy an AI that isn't going to get them into hot water from the, a regulatory or other perspective. Consumers also rely on you know, businesses to be trustworthy in that sense. And one of the ways in which that's represented from a, consum a consumer standpoint is through trademarks and brands, for example. Brands represent consumer trust, and that trust must be earned. It can also be lost. So in that context, can you tell us a little bit more from your perspective about how using AI without the foundations in place for trustworthy outcomes can be damaging? And what does it look like to build trust in AI? There are many different drivers of trust. One is transparency. And so if a decision is being made that is assisted by, or perhaps even made by uh, technology, transparency would dictate that I, as a consumer, as a job applicant, as a patient, as an insurance customer, we should know that technology has either made that decision or is assisting a human being in making that decision. And so transparency gets rather deep. You talk to me about the algorithmic decisions, talk to me about the data sets, talk to me about the training regimens. Now, this is all new vocabulary. 
you know, and this, this is why a lot of the work of the Alliance is to enhance AI literacy. We do not have to become experts on backpropagation and neural networks. We do have to, all of us, I mean, all of us as people, uh, need to be able to have some grasp of asking the right kinds of questions and understanding what a good answer is and a poor answer is. So one is drivers of trust, one is transparency, and related to that is explainability. So you, you heard that a lot. So that's the same thing, you know, like explain to me why this AI is outputting this particular recommendation or answer. And this is particularly important in critical decisions. So if you think about a doctor or a radiologist, or frankly, you know, a loan officer, who's making a decision and relying upon, or not relying upon, but looking to an AI system to help her or him make a good decision. They should interrogate that system. It shouldn't just be yes, no. They should say, why are you making that recommendation? And explainability means that the system has to be architected and designed in such a way so it is not opaque. Finally, because it's, it's so dependent, these models are so dependent on data, You'll hear a lot about data quality, and uh, that's true. But data quality, there's no universal definition, even among data scientists, as to what data quality is. There are so many potential attributes and parameters of that. But one of our latest project at the Data and Trust Alliance was to try to uh, resolve one aspect of it, which turned out to be data provenance. So if you think about provenance just in sort of everyday life, we take for granted that we under that somebody understands and knows with, with certainty the origin of our food, right? The origin of water, the origin of money. You know, I, I can't go down to my bank and deposit a hundred thousand dollars in cash without being without having to answer a lot of questions about where that came from. It's like a, a necessary precondition of transactions that are based on trust. And yet if you say um, in, in AI, what is the provenance of the data sets that train my model and that feed my model, uh, it's, you're going to get a lot of different answers. And, and so we spent uh, almost a year working with 19 different um, data science and uh, compliance and all sorts of teams from across the alliance companies to hammer out a set of data provenance standards that will be we hope to drive adoption for. I'd like to probe a little bit on the potential connection between the provenance standards and the increase in AI regulation. Many countries and regions like the, the EU are busy trying to regulate in this space. And in order to do that, one of the first things they do is ask businesses for information about how they're using AI to provide services to your customers. That's a tricky question to answer when you take into account not only the I'll call it known and deliberate ways in which the business has elected to use AI. The vendors that you mentioned earlier, for example, in the HR context that are using AI, which businesses should know about, but may not always know about in the service of their customers. And then even the potential for individual employees to query chat GPT in some way to do some aspect of their job. So when you, you, know, you mix all of those types of things, it's a sim seemingly simple question that can be very difficult for a business to answer. So does adoption of the provenance standards 
and potentially the flow down effects from that. For example, businesses requiring their vendors to, you know, to equally adopt those standards. Do you see any effect on how that might flow into the world of how AI is going to be regulated? Yeah, if you examine the EU AI Act, the provisions in that, and President Biden's executive order, you'll 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 see many references. They may not use the term provenance, although in some cases they do, but they talk about the transparency of the data. Provenance standards, by the way, cover things like time and date stamps, which kind of no brainer, but are they cross industry standards yet? It talks about rights and intent of consent. It it talks about um, data lineage. So from the standpoint of once collected or generated, what has happened to the data set as it's passed from system to system or from party to party? And these are fundamental things that the regulators are going to increasingly expect, if not require. And But even before then, this gets back to why the alliance was formed. Why wait to be told that you have to do something that you'd probably want to do, do it anyway? I mean, how, how could you possibly, if you're the CEO of a company and you're investing you know, a lot of money into these systems, you yourself want to know, your board of directors wants to know, your customers want to know, do we have confidence in the performance of these systems? And that will take you back to, again, it's not the only thing, but it is fundamental to having confidence in the performance and, and efficacy of these systems is the data. That all makes perfect sense. We have a couple of quick fire questions for you here to close out our session. So first quick fire question, what's the biggest misunderstanding about what you do professionally? This is your chance to clear it up. Well, my, my background uh, professionally was in marketing and, and communications and corporate affairs. And the misnomer there is that I'm like a word, wordsmith. You know, I, I write things or I, I do messaging, if only it were that easy. <laughs> um, and in fact, what you, what you get into is the, the perception or the brand or the reputation or the image that you as a company have or you as a leader have is not something that can be messaged. <laughs> it's something that is, it is a reflection of reality. And so if you, if, you, if you want to be known as a more innovative company, you actually have to be you know, innovative. And if you want to be trusted, you have to earn that trust. So a lot of the work that I've done for you know, decades has, uh, yes, the manifestation can be you know, um, communications and advertising and things like that. But the, the, the roots of it or the, the underneath that is dealing with the reality um, and a lot of the reality is not what you want. So you're, you're, you're having to be an advocate for some kind of transformation. And uh, that's, been, um, that's been the core of my work. What's a new skill you'd like to learn and why? Um, I don't know anything about music except I listen to it. I, and when I was a very young fella, I, I took music lessons. I just didn't understand it. I just didn't understand it. And, um, you know, I, I would like to revisit this because it's a source of great joy. And it also confounds me that it's something that I just could not understand, let alone do. I couldn't agree with you more about the joy there, though. 
Last question. What's your favorite word and why? Um, this is going to sound a little whatever, but I my favorite word is love. It's because it has so many dimensions to it. It's one word, and yet it, it, it means so many different things. And one's life seems to be tied to that and in different ways. So I, I think it's a very interesting and infinitely deep and complex, nuanced, meaningful word. One word unpacks so much about what we're all about. What a beautiful way to close our conversation. Thank you, John, so much for what has been an incredibly enjoyable and, for me, insightful conversation. We're very grateful for your time. Heather, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much.